0: Welcome to the Determined Truth podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome to the Determined Truth podcast. This is Vinny and I'm here with Rob. How's it going, Rob? I'm doing well, Vinny. How are you? Living the dream, you know. Can't <sighs> complain. So, uh, hey, we're continuing in our conversation about how to read the book of Revelation and we're breaking down uh, the genres. So uh, we we first in our first episode talked about just the book in general. The last episode, we talked about how uh, the book of Revelation is apocalypse. Tonight, we'll talk about prophecy. The next show, we'll talk about how to read letters, Uh, just kind of doing a bridge here. And we, you know, at the time of this recording right now, today is... Monday, August the 16th. And if you are a citizen of Afghanistan, you are having the worst weekend of your life. It's, it's just heartbreaking. The things that are happening over there. Uh, Like it's, it's one of those things that that there's just not words to describe the the grief. And, and as the church, this is really one of those times when we just need to weep with those who weep. I know I've been very disappointed by what I've seen on social media because everything's turned into a, you can't, you can't ignore the political side of things because that's there, but it's like church, let everyone else argue about the politics. Can we just weep with those who weep? (laughs) And, And it's just, it's, it's just frustrating on seeing a lot of that response there. But aside from that, the, one of the things I was really thinking of, I saw a tweet that's been popping up by a woman who knows people who live in Afghanistan and Christians specifically who live in Afghanistan. And, and apparently uh, there is a a, Chris, a local Christian church. I don't know if you have, if you had seen the, this this note that popped up where the Taliban had written a note to a letter to uh, one of the local churches saying, we know where you guys are at. It, it's wow. something to that effect. And basically it's like, we're coming for you. You're Christians. I say that because there's many people who on, you know, social media, my, my Facebook feed are talking about how this is just indicative of the end of the world and sign of the times, those sorts of things. And I'm thinking, yes, this is very much related to the book of revelation, but not in the way most people think that it would. And so I'm totally throwing you on the spot on this one. We haven't talked Mm -hmm. about this. If you were to preach a sermon out of the book of revelation right now to Christians in Afghanistan and their families. Okay it's, that's something that you would do, right? You you could absolutely Mm. go there and, and, and preach from that book. What is the message of Revelation speaking to Christians in Afghanistan specifically and their families right now? who are Hmm. specifically enduring persecution at the hands of the Taliban, not just because the Taliban's evil and they're killing just anyone, but specifically by persecuting Christians. How how would you make that connection to the book of revelation based on what we talked about last week, where apocalyptic literature is written for the people of God who are under uh, distress.
1: Right. And, And, and let's clarify that under distress does not mean that you actually have to be going through persecution at the hands of the state. It could be under distress because you are following Jesus. Remember Jesus himself said, take up your cross and follow me. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. And that brings on troubles all of itself in, in almost any, in most contexts. So I think because you put me on the spot and I didn't have time to prepare for this. So off the cuff, I would say, which is fine. I would say I would preach from the vision of Jesus in chapter one, the, John's vision of Jesus in chapter one. Uh, It is I I take courage to not be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So, and that description of Jesus and his resurrected glory, because I think that's one of the keys in the book of revelation, right? Not only that Jesus' life, death and resurrection inaugurated what we call the end times uh, inaugurated the beginning of the kingdom of God and the end of, of of the present age or the ending of the present age. It's a message of hope. It's a message of encouragement to Christians. Anywhere and everywhere, but especially those that are undergoing a situation right now. I think we could go to Paul and we can go so many other places. He's the God of all comfort and the father of all compassion. Uh, three times I asked for the Lord, take it away from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, Philippians, I can do all things through Christ Jesus. who gives me strength. I mean, there's so many places we can go. It'd be faithful and, and all that good stuff there. But I wouldn't even go there right now. I think I'd simply go with hope. In the resurrected, glorified, risen Jesus Christ, that He's coming again, that He sent His Spirit to give us comfort and peace in the meantime. And a story you may have heard many because it's a good preaching illustration, right? And this guy has this floods coming, and and this house is 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 under is under deluge and, and people are all dying and uh he says, Oh, you know, God, God's going to save me. God, you know, you promise that you'll save me and everything else. And I, I know you'll save me, and I, but the floodwaters come up. me, goes to the second floor and the Lord's going to save me. The Lord's going to rescue me. I know he's going to rescue me. And the floodwaters come up and he ends up on the roof of his house. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, the police force runs, comes by with, with a, a boat and Hey, get in, get in. He's like, no, no, no. The Lord's going to save me. Oh, okay. Whatever. You know? And then all of a sudden a, a rescue helicopter comes by, get in, get in. No, no, no. The Lord's going to save me. And all of a sudden, the floodwaters continue to rise and he drowns and dies. And he gets to heaven, he's like, Lord, why didn't you, you, you said you would help your people and you promised me that you would save me and why didn't you save me? It's like, dude, I sent you a rescue boat and a helicopter. What more do you want? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I bring that up now is because the job of the church around the world is to be that rescue boat or that helicopter because our brothers and sisters in Christ And not even just them, but, Mm -hmm. but anyone, many are suffering. You know, Vinny and I were just talking before this came on about the airplane that was lifting on off the runway, the U S airplane that was, and people were hanging on to the wing and hanging on to the legs and everything else. And the plane's taking off with these people on it and they're not going to get inside. They're not going to, they're not, they, and they didn't survive. They passed away. People are suffering and we shouldn't be talking about the politics. Biden made a stupid mistake. Really? Well, Guess what? <laughs> I, I think we may make a stupid mistakes for 20 years. Right? And, and mm-hmm. it probably goes back longer than that. You know, it, that's not the point. The point right now is, as you mentioned, um, Haiti is suffering from a 7.2 mm-hmm. earthquake and yeah. 1,200 and something people have died and the rest have trouble getting food because of access. And there's a thunder tropical storm heading their way. Uh, it's time for the church to say, hey, you know, hey, okay, what can I do? Uh, we need to be the rescue helicopter. We need to be that, that lifeboat as well. So to them, to answer your question, I think to them, I would say, uh, he's alive uh, he was dead but he has the keys of light of death and hades uh, do not fear and to us i'd say guys we can't just sit here and go ah, those people are stupid you know why would you live in that country or no it's it's the church at least be praying at least be grieving i think as as, as i think you are
0: yeah and that's where we need to take uh, passages like a revelation 7 seriously like when, when we look at, you know, behold the great multitude yeah. that no man can number of all tribes, tongues, and nations, like guess what? There's going to be Afghanistan Christians included in that. And we need to remember that. And so there, there <laughs> might
1: even be an American Christian, but I'm not sure of that. I'm probably more yeah. confident about all right.
0: yeah I had to go there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty good. Uh, yeah. So I just, anyway, I that's just been on my heart all day, just thinking about that and uh, mm-hmm. the beauty of the book of revelation that we still can find comfort in that mm-hmm. it's not just this future telling book. And, and that leads us into today's topic, which is how do we read the genre of prophecy? What does that mean? Because right. um, that's it, it clearly identifies itself as uh, you know whoever obeys the, uh, the words of this prophecy. So there, there, there's something that has to do with prophecy here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the word prophecy actually occurs seven times. And this you'll see this throughout the entire book of Revelation, that words were actually meant to be counted. How many times do they appear and seven times, of course, is the this prophetic word of to, to referring to all. Uh, um, it's it's all encompassing this uh, this text, and so it is it is a prophecy. So let me be. And, I, my and I would say right
0: there, you do a good job in your book, "Follow the Lamb." Of you have a whole chapter on how to read numbers in Revelation, right. uh, and, and so I just want to do a plug for that. Uh, you know, if because yeah, it really helps pray. you
1: understand the meaning. It's mm-hmm. not just like random numbers. Oh wow, it's, it's some no. The numbers have a particular meaning, and they enhance. And one of the things I, I note is that when you have numbers and you see the symbolic significance of the numbers, it's to enhance a meaning that's already present. It's not to come up with some, oh, therefore, you know, guess the 20, 2022 on October 12th, that's going to be, the, you know, no, it's not what it's doing. So let me begin by asking you, what do you think the average person in your church, because I think your church seems to be pretty typical of evangelicalism mm-hmm. in, in many ways, right? What do you think the average person in your church would say that the word prophecy means? Yeah. Prophecy by
0: the default meaning is always going to be a future telling event. And, uh, most of the time, regardless of where it's found in the scriptures, it's going to be future telling even from our standpoint. (laughs) Uh, so when my specific congregation has tried to do a good job of, uh, allowing the Bible to point to Jesus (laughs) and and say, Hey, no, we, 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 you know, all God's promises find their yes in him. Uh, but it's still out there. I think there's that default, uh, And there's some cognitive dissonance that happens with folks. So future telling events.
1: Okay. The generation that I grew up in or the world that I grew up in, it was not just a future telling event. It was a future telling event that's being fulfilled in our day, right? Mm -hmm. A future telling event about us. And we get to see the literal fulfillment of all these prophecies. 1948, Israel became a nation. Mm -hmm. See, literally fulfilled. And there's no way anybody else could ever have had a fulfillment before because it couldn't have been literal until now. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of of the idea. The thing to to recognize though, is that prophets wrote in a moment in history. And the significance of the prophets is that they were trying to convey a message of the people to whom they were writing. And they wanted that those people to act and they wanted them to act in a certain way in the book of revelations context, which we can go into more and more as we, as we move forward. It was to, to be faithful and to not compromise with the state or to not compromise with the society because compromising would be for sake of economic benefit or for the sake of privilege, or for the sake of status, or perhaps for the sake of avoiding persecution. So there's, there's a danger of compromise, which I think we see in the, the parable of the Sower in Mark 4. And John's writing them to say, no, uh, the lamb has overcome. He's established a new world order in the sense <laughs> that's probably not a good phrase to use. He's yeah. established a new a, a new kingdom. And that new kingdom says we do things through love and through sacrifice for the sake of other, not through power and military might. In oppression. And so hang in there because the kingdoms of the world are coming under destruction, under judgment, and they will not last only love lasts only Christ's kingdom lasts. So hang in there and, and be strong. And this, and you go to any prophet Isaiah through the old Testament, they were always writing to the people of their day saying, Hey guys, this is what you need to do.
0: Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, uh, the old Testament. Cause obviously we have a section of in the Old Testament called the Prophets. And and what's interesting is I don't think there's even times where I, where I think folks don't make the connection of the Old Testament prophets prophesy. Yeah, Like there's even, there's a prophet and then there's prophecy. One is an action, one is a, a noun, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we need to remember that prophets prophesy. Like that's the thing that they do. And so it, it would be appropriate to go to the Old Testament and say, okay, well, what is the thing that those guys were doing? Th- those right. folks, those people. Uh, so so help us out there. Like how, do, how does this connect to the Old Testament? Even the word Old Testament, the first covenant, if, if you will, the old covenant, if you will, like what's the covenantal connection there?
1: Yeah, so first thing is, We need to read John in light of the Old Testament prophets, the commissioning of John as a prophet, which occurs in the book of Revelation chapter 10. And my podcast on Revelation 10 probably discusses this somewhat Mm -hmm. is parallel with Ezekiel's commissioning as a prophet in Ezekiel 2.8 through 3.3. They're both commissioned as a prophet. They're both given a scroll to eat that is writing on both sides. They're both told to eat the scroll and it'll be sweet as honey in their mouth. John says it turned his st- stomach bitter, but still parallel as well. And then they're told, "Now go prophesy." And those, they they digest these words, and then they go prophesy. John's commission as a prophet in the context of an Old Testament prophet. Uh, so the prophets were tied to the covenant, and so in fact uh, we we often call often call prophets like Isaiah as covenant uh, enforcers. Now, when we say the covenant or covenant enforcers in, the, in a biblical context, we're speaking of the book of Deuteronomy. That's that's the uh, epitome of the of the covenant because it's the the word Deuteronomy means the second covenant, the second law. And it's the, the law that the Israelites take, take into the promised land when they, when they embark on the promised land. And the law says, if you do these things, I will bless you and you'll be blessed and you'll be a witness to the nations because they're going to see how great you are because of how much I blessed you. But if you do these things, you're going to be cursed because you're disobeying me and the nation is going to go, what kind of God is that? So I'm going to have to curse you to uphold my name and defend my name, as Bucky of Ezekiel says, for my name's sake, I'm acting. And so this is the covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. In particular, it's an agreement between a superior and an inferior, typically a a king and his subjects. Mm -hmm. God, of course, is the king and the subjects are the people of Israel. And the deal is you keep my laws and obey them and I will bless you. You disobey them and I will curse you. And so we look at Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30, which I would often say might be the four most significant chapters in the Old Testament. If you get those four chapters, you probably are going to get the rest of the Old Testament. So what happens when Isaiah comes along, and Isaiah is like the first of the prophets, maybe Nahum is before him, but nonetheless, we we consider Isaiah kind of the beginning of the prophetic ministry. And what happens is Isaiah actually may have worked for the king. He he may have been a political advisor, but his whole point was, you guys have broke the covenant, and I'm here to tell you that God says he's going to do what he said. Now, note note the significance of that what Isaiah is do is he's looking to the past to what God has said and saying, God's going to do what he said he was going to do. And this is what he said he was going to do. So the first thing to understand about the prophets is you have to understand Deuteronomy and the law code. And his goal was, you guys got to repent, wash yourselves. I think he says in chapter, in chapter one, verse 17, make yourselves clean, repent lest God do what he said he was going to do. And you're going to be exiled. Now, Right when we say that, we're like, okay, he's prophesying. He's predicting the future, and and he's telling something that's going to happen. But the first point will be he's he's saying, look, this is what's going to happen if you don't obey. If you do obey, it won't happen. Now, every once in a while, and very rarely, the prophets will come along and say, hey, you guys are doing great. Mm -hmm. And keep it up because God's going to bless you, by the way. But if you stop doing what's great, then the curses will come. So with that, uh,
0: prophets are very much, uh, you know, prophets of their time. They they their job description, as you called it, covenant enforcers, and they're enforcing the covenant to their specific uh, group of people. So it'd be similar to like how a policeman. Uh, right now, you, you live in Mesa, I live in uh, the East Bay, and in so California. Yeah. He, yeah. Of California in the Bay area. So you, you have policemen who might serve that job, but there's policemen who are licensed, if you will I forget the, their jurisdiction is to enforce the law in Mesa and it might be in the County. Uh, I don't know what County Mesa's in Maricopa. Uh, Maricopa. Okay. There you go. Yeah,
1: we were famous uh, on uh, election night.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so they have a jurisdiction there, but they can't drive up to where I'm at and it's not their or it's not their job to drive up to where I'm at and enforce the law where I'm at it's they're specifically enforcing the law or in in calling people to repentance in your way and this is totally there's there's a lot of ways in which this falls short and it breaks down but just yeah. trying to you know create an illustration here
1: yeah let, let me take it one more step actually because I think the parallel is with a is with a modern day pastor sure yeah or preacher or teachers because and we'll, we'll probably get to this later on, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue the greatest gifts, which is the gift of prophecy. Because yeah. when he listed the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, the highest gift was apostleship, which seems to indicate you can't get that one. Mm-hmm. The second number, number two gift was prophecy. He said, seek prophecy. And what a prophet does is he takes the word of God that's already written and he expounds upon it and applies it to the people of their day. Most pastors have some as- aspect of the gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Now, to take the analogy that you just used and say, well, the jurisdiction of the prophet is the church. Mm -hmm. And so often, if you just open up Facebook, you think the jurisdiction of the prophets is the world and society, the American government, American politics. It's like, no, we're supposed to be a prophetic voice to the church. And we live prophetically for the sake of the people and the nations but we don't necessarily speak prophetically. Like you guys better do this. Like, no, we speak to the church and say you guys better do this or you guys should be doing this, etc. So yeah, good analogy. And,
0: and, and there's no other, uh, there's no worse feeling. I remember sitting through a, a summer series years ago on, on um, you know, the pastor wanted to take the church through the minor prophets. So like mm-hmm. each, each week during the summer, he just kind of hit a minor prophet. And I thought it was a great, cool. uh, great yeah. concept. Absolutely. The problem is the application points were, it was usually hanging out on one of a couple sins that this pastor wanted to hobby mm. horse on. And he was, a, he was just, uh, commend, condemning the world rather than saying it missed the whole point. I'm like, the, the, the prophet is, is prophesying to the covenantal people of God, yes. calling them out. He's not judging the world. Let, right. let, let, they, they already have a judge. It's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he has shown you oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice,
0: yes, to yes. love
1: mercy and walk humbly with thy God. He's calling you out to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly. And you do that in front of the world, but he's not calling the world to do justice. And we don't,
0: well, I'll just say this when the preacher did get to Micah that week, he didn't touch Micah six, eight. <laughs> so oh, yeah. It was a little bit. And the thing is, it's it's easy to, to, to cherry pick yeah. these things. And, but it's like, no, the, the, the prophets are meant to be a mirror to us. Like, yes. this is what we look, we're not under that covenant. And, and, and so we need to understand how covenants work and, and what God requires of in a sense, but this shows the ethic of God and the heart for God, for people. And, and this is yeah. the mirror that we hold up.
1: Yep. That's right. And they go back, even again to the conversation we had with, with Afghanistan it's the church's job to be that prophetic voice to the church to say, hey, we need to act and get our act together to help our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or the people in Haiti or, or whatever. That, that, that's our prophetic task.
0: Yeah. So if the job then of the Old Testament prophet, because we've been using that as an example, mm-hmm. if, if their primary job is to be a covenant enforcer to call the people of God to repentance, the covenantal people of God. What do we do then with parts of what they're saying that seem to predict the future?
1: Well, the first thing that we have to do is understand it in light of its immediate context. So in many cases, the prophets are simply saying, hey, this is the blessing that's going to happen if you repent, or this is the curse. And most often, this is the curse that's going to happen if you don't repent. Every once in a while, you'll get a prophet coming along, you know, actually, it's just too late for you. And I'm here to announce Mm -hmm. that the (laughs) impending judgment is going to come. Impending judgment is coming, and it's coming in their lifetime, right? They're going to experience the judgment. So that's, that's the first thing. Now, That means that by nature, and we can discuss this in more detail on another uh, another topic where we're just talking about prophecy in, in, in general, most prophecies actually are what we would call conditional, because the implied condition is God's going to do this because you broke the covenant. But the point of the prophet actually is to get the people to repent, and if the people did repent then the impending judgment is actually not going to happen. It's a a conditional prophecy. God's going to do this to you. He told you he's going to do this, and then he doesn't do it. Well, why not? Because they actually repented. So even though it doesn't say, if you repent, God will relent. Like, no, that's actually just kind of implied. And you can read Jeremiah and you can read Ezekiel. You know, If the righteous man stops doing righteousness, then this is what's going to happen. I'm not going to bless him. And if the wicked person continues to practice wickedness, then this is what's going to happen. So I that, mean, we even
0: see this in Jonah it, it yeah. not, the Ninevites. are not even the covenantal people of God. The message that Jonah preaches is 40 days and God destroys his place. There's no condition
1: in there. That's <laughs> right. the but just, Jonah knew exactly, that God yeah. was merciful. And he's like, yeah. I'm not going to them because I don't, this is my enemy. I don't want them to repent. Mm-hmm. So the prophetic word isn't to Nineveh in the sense that uh, you broke the covenant. The prophetic word is to Jonah to be obedient, to preach the exactly. gospel to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: man. I'm knocking these off. Seminary paid off for me. Apparently, yeah, I didn't yeah. We well, had some seminary, really good instructors. Yeah, well, in my Greek grammar class. So,
1: yeah, I
0: yeah. <laughs> was the only one. Okay, yeah, <laughs> all one of you. Yeah, best Greek, best best Greek prof I ever had. Just yeah, yeah, FYI. yeah. That's why I want to let you Totally. Know that yeah. <laughs> good. So, uh, so prophets are primarily concerned with the action of God's people in their present day, um, but there is a prophetic element of it. Could we say that there's a, um, you know, a near, one of the the terms that I see that biblical scholars will use, Old Testament scholars will use near predictions and far predictions. Uh, Do you categorize it that way from the perspective of the prophet?
1: I have, it depends on what you mean by it. So it can work, but I think that language is probably going to be misleading to, to somebody else the people of the day thought they were probably all near and were expecting and anticipating them all to be near. Even as I think Paul and the new Testament writers were thinking that the predictions of Christ's return are going to be near. They they had this Mm -hmm. anticipation of it. What I would not do is use that language to say double fulfillment. And I don't know if you've heard that language. You probably have, right? Yeah. All right. So some go, okay, what we have in the scriptures is clearly that, that even the ones that are quote, quote unquote far are clearly fulfilled in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Although there's some elements where like, okay, this hasn't come in fullness. And so what happens is you get this conversation, wait a minute, it predicts that this is going to happen with the state of Israel, with the people of Israel, with the Jewish people and a rebuilt temple. But then Jesus comes along and says, I'm actually the temple of God. Okay. So here's what we'll do. Double fulfillment. That prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus as himself, the temple of God, and it will be fulfilled someday in a restored physical building in Jerusalem as a temple. Like, no, 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 no. Now, it's fulfilled in Jesus and then through Jesus. And that through Jesus is in the life of the church, through the spirit, and then ultimately climaxing in the new Jerusalem. So that that would be the only trajectory I would go. But the idea of double fulfillment is just so that you can hold on to some quote-unquote literal literal interpretation of the prophecies. But Jesus literally was the temple. So, I mean, you Mm -hmm. can't go too far with this. So I I think that'd be the, the, the key the next thing to recognize is the biblical writers of the new testament absolutely understood that the scriptures period whole genesis through malachi every single verse was a, were about jesus that it was always pointing us to jesus he is the true adam that's why he's called the son of man he's the true Ad, or son of god he's the true adam he's the true Abraham. he's the true israel he He's the true israelite he's he's the true sacrifice he's the true temple all these things that were all so when the biblical writers all of a sudden they go back and go hey look you know the gospel of matthew has five fulfillment passages in chapters one and two that we often read at the christmas story one of them says that he went that uh, he, he escaped he, he left egypt and the family didn't go back to bethlehem because uh, herod's son was there not going to go there Archelaus, he's not a good guy he's even worse than his father herod so they went back to nazareth and it says in order to fulfill the scriptures, that he will be called a Nazarene. My problem, it, there's no scripture, there's no prophecy that ever says he'll be called a Nazarene. Or one I was actually dwelling on the other day, John the Baptist. Jesus himself comes in Mark chapter nine, coming down the mountainside. He's transfigured. They, they see Peter, James, and John, see Moses and Elijah. And, and Jesus says, Hey, look, I'm gonna, I'm, the Son of Man's going to suffer and, and be killed, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Mark nine, verses nine and 10. And the disciples turn and go, we don't even know what rising from the dead means, but they were afraid to ask him. Mm -hmm. And then they turn and ask Jesus, I say, you know, we thought that the scripture says that Elijah must come first. So here's your prophecy. Malachi 3, Malachi 4 says Elijah will come before the coming of the Messiah. So they they were all thinking of that. Now, Matthew's gospel is explicit. John the Baptist was Elijah. Mm -hmm. And Mark's gospel says it more discreetly. It's probably why Matthew was so explicit, right? Just, Just clarifying. We thought, John, we thought Elijah was going to come first. If you're the Messiah, and we, and we believe you are, they just confess that at the end of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, then what happens to Elijah? And Jesus himself said, Elijah does come first. And I tell you, he has come. And then it says, and they did to him whatever they wanted. Uh, as the scripture said, it says, A, right? hey, what do you mean they did to him whatever they wanted? Well, it has to, if you're looking at the narrative of Mark's Gospel, it has to go back to King Herod. Uh, and herod's son antipas and his beheading of john the baptist mm-hmm. because he spoke against the, the marriage that shouldn't have taken place because his wife left her his brother but then it says they, they did to him whatever they wanted well that has to refer to, to, to his beheading but what do you mean as the scripture said it, there's no prophecy where a, this elijah figure is going to suffer because jesus understood that suffering is what the people of god do and he just applies this in, this in what we would call a Christological sense, meaning in, through the lens of Jesus. And Jesus himself applies it to John the Baptist as part of this, of this kingdom of God. So the, the reality then is script, prophecies have this, this future element, but they're all fulfilled. Or we, the, the way the New Testament looks at them is we look at them through the lens of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we can, we can go forward and go, oh, okay. Jesus is the temple of God, really, I'll, I'll summarize it here. Jesus is the temple of God, and now he sends his spirit, right? which is Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, I'm going to give you my spirit and cause you to, mm-hmm. cause you to come back to life, and we become the temple of God, because the spirit of God dwells in us, that's the next level of fulfillment, so in other words, Jesus isn't only the temple, it's not just fulfilled in him, it's fulfilled in us, too, and then, ultimately, the new Jerusalem comes down, and it's where God dwells with people, right, Re- Revelation 21.3, Revelation 21.7, God will dwell with them again in fullness and totality. That's the ultimate fulfillment. So as long as we're on that kind of a trajectory, no problem at all. Okay. So, yeah.
0: So, so even there though, there are still so many people that are convinced and even in, in their times where, uh, it's clear that okay, this there is a prophecy that's very clear that's fulfilled in Jesus. You know, right. we could look at on Isaiah fifty three, or uh, you know, it, you know anything sung that handles Messiah. That's you know <laughs> clearly a Jesus text. Um, but why are so many folks convinced that prophecy just solely means foretelling the future?
1: It's become very in vogue in the last couple hundred years, and it goes back really to the Puritans. And they're coming to America, and and that era and probably even precedes them a little bit. They thought, okay, we're going to come to America, and we're going to establish the New Jerusalem. And look at all the mm-hmm. cities in the on the East on the East Coast that have all these biblical New Haven. This is going to be this is going to be the, the new promised land. And uh, the Babylonians, but I'm sorry, the American Indians were the Canaanites, and that, that's <laughs> yeah. just but that that's just the thinking of this of this mindset. That created this this. this flow of this trajectory of, Bible, of understanding the scriptures that was significantly influenced by the incursion of higher critical thinking and all that good stuff in the biblical world. But to, to skip over for the lay person listening, uh, Darwinian evolution, and, and it's coming into play as well. Oh, wait a minute. The church reacted, some segments reacted to that by going, the Bible's literal, it's literal, it's literal, it's literal. That was their means of, defi- of defending themselves. Against liberalism, that was the big fear, and historical criticism of the Old Testament and even of the New Testament. And even so right much, there, just
0: to interject, yeah. liberalism—you are not talking politically. This is what's happening from a, this is a, 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 a worldview uh, in terms of how uh, the critical world understands the Bible and that sort of thing. Lots yeah. of things that are happening in Germany in the 1800s.
1: Yeah, exactly right. The fill in the blank will be uh, critically looking at the Genesis text. Going, if we compare Genesis to ancient Near Eastern texts. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Adam and Eve were real people. Of course they were. Of course they were, right? So higher criticisms were asking these questions. Is is this historically true? Is this historically accurate? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's inspired by God. And by the way, I believe it's accurate. I have no problems with all that. But this became the reaction. That then began to fuel itself in in an end time speculation. 1820s, by the way, Darby actually isn't the first one. It's It's the Puritans and there are people before Darby and then Darby comes along 1830s. And starts making these predictions which gets picked up by Schofield late 1800s beginning of the 1900s which becomes codified in the Schofield bible and then that led to a tradition that became very popular and very prevalent in the 1900s you advance the late 19th century then or late 20th century and you get the, the reality of wait a minute this stuff is actually happening literally because Israel became a nation look the Russians are going to invade Israel you know that and that's God and you start it, start it starts getting reinforced we believe this I can make the Bible read it this way. And oh, and then and then I can say, see literal fulfillment. And that trajectory kind of get got going. And I'll give you a, little, a quick anecdote. So I wrote my book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times. And I solicited it to some major Christian publishers, Baker, mm-hmm. uh, Zondervan, and, and, and Erdmans, and um, IVP, etc. One of them, I got a response. I got a response from several of them. It went all the way to committee on like two or three of them, which actually is, is pretty good because committee is like the last step. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is good news. I might, I might get, get accepted. And they said, we love it, Rob. And I had a couple of conversations with, when they called me like, Rob, we really like this book. But they said, we're not going to publish it because we don't think it'll sell. And I'm like, okay, I totally get it. You have to make money. If you don't think it's going to sell, you can't publish it and take a loss that you just, you have to make money. I, I totally get that. And they, got, and they said, one of them said in an email, Because people only want to buy books that reinforce their wacky beliefs. Hmm. And the point of that, actually, of of bringing that up is the scholarly world knows almost absolutely. I'm on the study committee for the Book of Revelation study group for the Evangelical Theological Society. I have a really good feel for the heartbeat of what evangelicals believe and what the academy believes. And almost across the board, the academy knows that most of the stuff of modern day uh, end time stuff is just way out way off base now they might still believe literal israel they might still believe a future temple some of them might believe that most of them do not but the problem is is that when people want to publish books to help the church understand differently the publishers say no we can't publish that because it because it won't sell and because people only want to buy books to reinforce their rocky beliefs so i get one more anecdote on that And another reason why that is is because so many pastors are afraid to speak up. I can promise you that the pastors educated in the seminaries around the country, they also know better. But the problem is, is they got a study of the book of Revelation, maybe on the last two hours of their New Testament survey course, because that's all the time they had left for it. And they probably had some reading to do for it. Mm-hmm. And so they, okay, I got this reading. I, okay, oh, wow, this is really cool. I love the book of Revelation, it's really great, but I'm not gonna say anything in my church because my church believes differently. And I really don't know enough on how to respond to them. I know what the scholarly world says, and I know what the Bible says, but if I say this, it's going to cause a problem in my church, so I won't speak up. And some of them even let so-and-so, who's an influential deacon in the church, do a Bible study on it because he's been pestering you all along. And if you come along and say, no, you can't do that Bible study because I think you're wrong, you're going to cause a a controversy in the church. And so they, they acquiesce and they let the false, what they know is false be taught in their churches. So you can't really fault the path. Although I, I would fault them for allowing it that be taught. Mm-hmm. You can't fault them for not speaking up because you have enough fires to put out as it is. You don't need to start any of your own. So I get right. it. But, but the reality is that, that all of those things I think are perpetuating the miss, uh, the misunderstanding. And I'll
0: even say in my seminary class, we did touch it. The final week (laughs) of uh, of New Testament two, which covered that second part of the Bible, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so not a lot of time. I will say though, a great resource that came out of that though was the assigned reading for that class, which I'll plug right now, which you will endorse, which is Michael Gorman's book, uh, "Reading Revelations Responsibly." So just reading the book itself that was an amazing help for me.
1: Michael Gorman's book is fabulous, and it's not a hard read, and it's not a long read. It's called Reading Revelation Responsible. We'll try to put that, a link for that in the show notes. Yeah,
0: And I'll even uh, say this. My aunt, who I think listens to this podcast, she picked this book up a few my months aunt. ago. Yeah. And, and she, she was like, oh, she's texting me like the OMG. I can't believe this book. It's it's messing with my mind. You know, yeah. so even the lay people can totally hang with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, by the way, I was going to show you this. Look look at this.
1: Oh, Michael Gorman's Cruciformity. The 20th I just picked edition. it up. Nine, yes, I've
0: I have not gone through this book yet. So you know it's, your it's, interview. It's a I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it it's a it's a big boy. It is a so. chore. Anyway, so let, let's let's get back in this then. So we've laid the foundation of prophecy. We've looked at the old testament, we've looked at just the concept of the, the job description, what prophecy looks like. Let's get back into revelation yes. then and, and relate prophecy to the book of Revelation.
1: Yeah. All right. So, first thing to understand is the book of Revelation has three genres, and use that word earlier just to our listeners Reader- who don't <laughs> know what it means. Genre is just a style of writing, a style of communication, a style of writing. So, we have letters, which aren't really letters, but they're more epistles, but a little bit different than what we call letters throughout the New Testament. We have the Gospels, which are not biographies, but that's kind of an, you know, the story of Jesus' life. Uh, we have apocalyptic. Uh, We have the book of Acts, which is historical in in the New Testament. Old Testament, of course, has history and and, uh, proverbs and things like that. So the book of Revelation actually is a mix of three genres. In all three genres, we already touched on apocalyptic, and we discussed how it had relevance to the people of their day, describing what's going on to give them encouragement to hang in there for a little while longer. Speaking of people today, prophecy, we're already discussed now, has relevance to the people of their day. And obviously a letter clearly has relevance to the people of their day. Mm -hmm. And the whole book is a prophecy, an apocalyptic, and a letter. Don't look at, like, well, chapters two and three are letters. No, the whole thing's a letter. The last word in the book of Revelation is amen. In Revelation 1, 4, John says, I, John, am writing to to the seven churches. So the next thing is, so John's acting as a prophet. And what we discussed already then tonight is that a prophet is concerned about the people of his day, speaking a prophetic word to them. And when we open up chapter one, we realize, oh, it's a vision of Jesus Christ who's, resurrected and glorified who was dead and is alive forevermore that's the first prophetic message is hang in there because jesus was dead and he's alive forevermore he's got the keys of death in hades and he's going to resurrect you too so that that, this is the prophetic word there now and we can discuss we'll discuss the seven letters uh, i think on our next one each of the seven letters actually begins with this phrase that that might be translated as like thus says depending on your translation Mm -hmm but the phrase is actually used actually introduces a prophetic formula in the old Testament for when the Lord speaks through the mouth of a prophet. So even the seven letters are actually prophetic. So John's putting himself in the role of a prophet. I mentioned already John 10, revelation 10, which is parallel with Ezekiel chapters two, uh, eight verse three, three, where John's being commissioned as a prophet. I think chapter 11 is that prophecy, the story of the two witnesses. Mm-hmm. So the point of that end is, is John's not telling you about the distant future for the sake of informing you about the distant future. Cause that would be of no relevance to his people. He's trying to get his people to be faithful, now overcome for the sake of the gospel, because Jesus overcame for your sake. He was dead. Now he's alive. And if you overcome, you'll sit down with him on his throne, Revelation 321, just as he overcame, sat down with the father on his throne. So endure and don't compromise. So that's, it's the strong prophetic, prophetic message that has extremely good relevance, as we discussed a little bit earlier, for all of us.
0: Well, and even one thing that I, uh, you, you hinted on, I just want to make explicit here. What, what you are not saying in just a correct popular mm-hmm. thought, you're not saying that the book of revelation is the letters of chapters two and three. And then the prophecy begins in chapter four, which correct. is a common misunderstanding. Or the apocalypse
1: begins in chapter four. Correct. Yes. We're not saying that the whole thing is that yeah. the letters are apocalyptic. If anyone had ears let I'm here, the letters are prophetic. Thus says the Lord. And the letters are letters. The, the whole book is apocalyptic letter and an epistle. Yeah.
0: And in a sense, the, the letters of chapter two and three, they almost read, they read more like prophecies than letters. There's Yeah, you're introducing who you're writing to in terms of the church, but it doesn't at all read like any sort of standard letter from the ancient world. It's it's filled with, for the most part, blessings and curses. Do this and this. If not, it's going to be bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, And we'll talk about this next time also, but the letters are actually intricate to the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. you can't separate the seven letters from the rest of the book. And I know some pastors will like to do that because, well, I can preach in the seven letters because I just have to do some research on Ephesus and what's going on there. And I don't have to get into the apocalyptic stuff. And it's just, yeah. well, the seven letters, you really can't detach them from the rest of the book because each of the seven letters ends with a promise to the one who overcomes. And the fulfillment of those promises happens later on in the book. And so you see, and there's more to it as well, which we'll discuss next time. The letters are very integral to the entirety of the book.
0: Yeah. So some of the language that the prophets use are uh very colorful. (laughs) Uh and and prophets can just do this anyway, even in in the old testament, but especially in Revelation, which is an apocalypse, which is going to use symbolic language. Uh I I forget if we talked about this on the last episode with with uh Mm -hmm. reading uh uh, apocalypse. Yeah, apocalypse. Yeah. But uh yeah, apocalyptic. But even like the way John introduces uh he has made it known to you. What is that in verse one? And uh, in, in even the concept, he has made it known. I know many good commentaries, Beale's commentary will do this. So it will go back to Daniel and this concept of, it's it's this concept of, of signs, it's sin- signifying something that's happening here. So he's telling us right up off the bat, I'm going to communicate something and it's going to be with signs. It's not going to be straightforward. So w- one of the questions that we would have is, as a prophet is writing in the genre of apocalypse, Why, why won't they just tell straightforward language or use straightforward language? Why, why don't they just tell us straight out or the, the original audience straight out? Why did, why do they have to use all these signs and symbols and weirdness?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did a class a number of years ago at a church in Pennsylvania on the book of Revelation. And by the time we got to like chapter 12, someone said, well, now I get it. Why didn't they just say that all along? I'm like, well, actually they did say that all along. They just used language and and concepts that were familiar to the people of their day. And we are divorced from it. So that's one part of it. Secondly, revelation, apocalypses or parables of Jesus are hidden because those who do not have ears to hear won't hear it. The one who has ears to hear, which means the one who comes to Jesus to find out what the answer is. They are are privileged. Jesus himself. said, you know why I speak in parables because those seeing, they do not see though hearing, they do not hear, but to those who have ears, they will understand and they will see. Now, People have speculated on why the language of the book of Revelation, and one of the speculations is, well, because the message was so subversive to the Roman Empire, because it's, it's casting the, the, the Roman Empire as the beast mm-hmm. who's under the control of the devil, right? Your, his power, throne, and influence, Revelation 13, too, comes from the dragon. If Rome finds out about this, then all Christians are done. I mean, this, they're, they're just going to be toast. And so maybe that's a reason for this uh, subversive the subversive nature of the writing leads to the imagery itself and that may be true that might might make some sense i mean after all jesus himself said that the pharisees are the ones that the sea was sown on the soil on the roadside with the bird snatched away and the bird represents the devils he, he couldn't say that outright and unless he was going to get killed uh, that day but mm-hmm. another thing and i think we discussed this a little bit in the last one so i'll keep brief, keep it brief here There's no better language to use when you're describing God breaking into history and doing something significant like the coming of Jesus or like his baptism or like his crucifixion or like his resurrection, except to say, or like his second coming, except to say the cosmos are in an upheaval. The stars are falling from the sky. The moon became like blood and the sun became blackened. This is language. that's only fitting for the coming of the King in history. Now, that doesn't mean that the stars actually fell because if they did, we would have no life on earth after Pentecost yeah. because it said the sun became blackened and you can't have life if the sun becomes blackened, period. So it's just the best language to use. It's the most appropriate worthy language to use. This, And I call it cosmic upheaval language because it, it describes God breaking into history.
0: And even as you're describing, even, even the first part about how maybe there's a, a, a hidden aspect where you need to write in code, uh, mm-hmm. In the sense of hiding from Rome right. uh, and, and not being as explicit, I mean, this is something that the the New Testament does anyway. I mean, if it, the Gospel of Mark was written first, mm-hmm. in I'm just thinking back to the Mark 14 account of the uh, the night before Passover or the Passover event when uh, mm-hmm. uh, the the woman, the unnamed woman, anoints Jesus, right? And and, and we're gonna remember her forever. Yes. Well, who it? Who she's is never it? named until you go? What is it to John when he tells us it's Mary? Right. And, 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 well why well if mark is writing and it's it's the first gospel that's written in, and mary's probably still alive why name her unnecessarily exactly. when if john's writing later in her life it's okay we let's actually uh you know name her now and give her the, the honor that she's due so this is something that we would see even in in other writings uh, yeah yeah you know, Without idea
1: the lazarus story of john 11 is supposed to be the key story that says okay we're gonna kill him now we're done with this he resurrected this guy on the fourth day this is too much we're but mm-hmm. the Lazarus story is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. If it's mm-hmm. so critical, why? Because he was still yeah. alive when those books were yeah. penned and his life was in danger if, if it if it got known to who he, who, who he actually was. Um,
0: absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So um, one of the problems that people will face when they're just looking at what's happening <laughs> with the book of Revelation uh, is that you know, we, we think it's just all going to be forward thinking, maybe the first three chapters, the letters that was applicable back then, this is probably the most common uh, view mm-hmm. is chapters one through three where, yeah, that was for the historic church. We're waiting for f- chapter four to happen. Cause that's, that's explaining the rapture, which I, I've always thought was interesting. If we're going to read it literally, where do we literally read that? <laughs> this is the rapture. John doesn't say that, uh, but that's a, that's a theological issue to work out that you don't care about.
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> I care, care a lot yourself. about it, actually my dissertation was on that topic.
0: Uh, oh, but not chapter chapter four.
1: It, well, the whole idea of that, uh, just, just to speak into it, the whole idea of that thesis is that from chapter four of the book of Revelation on, the church is no longer mentioned. So there's yes, the seven yeah. churches of chapters two and three, and the church is no longer mentioned. My dissertation was on the people of God in the book of Revelation. That's right. Yeah. And chapter 11, of course, that they're all, I mean, they're they're all they're all over chapter seven, chapter 11, they they're they're just all over the place. So the people of God are not absent. In fact, the whole point of the book is to encourage them to overcome in the midst of the suffering. So yeah, that thesis actually doesn't seem to carry, carry much weight. Yeah, yeah.
0: So if, if for the person then who says, hey, you know, there's only a small amount that, you know, a few chapters uh, were applicable for the ancient church. A lot of this is just describing stuff that we're going to get zapped out of here anyway. There's, there's actually not a lot because if, if a rapture happens, you know, right before chapter four, like literally this book has nothing to do with us except for maybe gives us signs to how to watch the news or something like that. Um, what would be the relevance to John's readers and, and how would they have understood this?
1: That's one of the points. And I, I think we have a podcast. I have a podcast before you became the co-host uh, from way back on, on the rapture. So you can listen to more detail about that as well. That's one of the whole points that, that what we've done by saying, oh, the prophets, Isaiah, were pointing forward to the time of Christ. And then the time of like the year 2000, whatever it might be, then this has no relevance to people of their day. And it makes no sense. Yet the whole point of it was, if anyone has insight, let them calculate the number of the beast because his number is that of a man and it's six, six, six. He's telling them, say, if you have wisdom, calculate it because you're going to figure it out. So all of a sudden we realize, oh, I guess it was speaking to those people in that day. And then of course that message transcends history. We do the same thing with the book of Ephesians, right? We, we read Ephesians and we go, we must understand Ephesians in light of what Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus at that day and at that time. Exactly the same thing with the book of revelation. What was John saying to his churches at that day? And at that time, the whole thing. And then we figure out what's the application for us today. Instead, we assume, Oh, actually this one's actually about us. And one of the problems with that, of course, is that the church has been saying pe- people within the church, not that church people within the church have been saying that same thing for the last 1900 years. It's actually about us. The Thessalonians said it was about us. The church in the second century said it was about us. The church in the, mid- in the middle ages said it's about us. 1500s are all kinds of predictions. About, it was about us. And then have, and every one of them has been wrong because it's not simply about you. It begins with Jesus and the church at the time. All right. So let's
0: wrap this up when we're looking at, you know, specifically revelation in light of the, the prophets.
1: Yeah. The first thing to do is to recognize that the prophets were looking back and John was looking back for John. He's looking at the Christ event as the beginning of the end, as the key moment in fulfillment. The reason why the scroll in the father's hand can be unsealed, the seven seals is because the lamb is worthy because he was slain. And now what does that mean for us? That means for us, we don't have to fear death because Jesus has overcome it. And we too will overcome it if we're, if we faithfully persevere. And so there's this message and then, all right, well, what's the danger of us? Well, the danger of us is compromise. Idolatry as the old Testament would say when you're reading the old Testament prophets understand that they too were looking back. I remember being in an Isaiah course back in graduate school and, I was the only New Testament guy in the, in the entire course. And so the, prof, the, prof, the professor would say, oh, hey, this passage here, you know, what do you think the, uh, what part of scripture is, is the prophet referring to here? I'm like, oh, you know, Matthew chapter, chapter one says this. And he's like, no, Rob, no, Rob, go the other direction. I'm like, what? And I finally realized, okay, every one of the answers is Deuteronomy or Genesis. The <laughs> prophets were looking backwards. And of course, Matthew was looking backwards. He was looking at Jesus and he was looking at Exon the, at the fulfillment there. So also John's looking backwards and they're using imagery that was prevalent in their day. So one of the key imageries that they're using is the imagery of the exodus, because even when they talk about the exile, you guys are going to out of the land and then God's going to bring you back. It's the same thing as when you went into Egypt and God brought you back. So when they talk about that, the prophets themselves, Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel and um, Zechariah and Malachi, they're describing the return from exile, Haggai in light of a of a new exodus but it's going to be a new exodus it's going to be greater than the previous exodus john uses that same imagery also it's exodus imagery if you read the book of revelation you'll see lots of imagery from the book of exodus throughout the book of revelation because that's where he's getting his imagery from he's not getting it as Hal Lindsay would say john was transported in the 20th century 1900 mm-hmm. plus years and saw a vision of the future, he didn't know how to describe it because it's nuclear bombs. So he just did the best he could in language that he could convey it in and of his day. So it was like, there's like there's like those heads and they got like faces, like human faces. It's like, no, that's not what he's talking about. It's not a helicopter, sorry.
0: Well, and so looking backwards, and then even for us as we're reading Revelation, then even when we're reading the old testament today. When when we pop it when we you know parachute into those very popular passages, uh, Joel two, Daniel seven or two, Ezekiel forty through forty eight, we should be reading those in light of you know the Christ right in the Christ event
1: that way, right? And then our role in in continuing the fulfillment because Christ began the fulfillment, but and what I mean by that is the fulfillment is the blessing of the nations, and Jesus doesn't go to the nations; he sends us. So as Christ fulfilled that, so also do we. And the significance of that is the conversation we have with Michael Gorman. And that is offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Yeah, you carry your cross, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's Romans, as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. And fulfill this ministry and know that it's not going to be easy. If they crucify Jesus, what are they going to do to us? But he has overcome the lamb that was slain is the risen Lord of all creation. And so too shall we be resurrected and there won't be any more hunger or crying or mourning or death because all things will be passed away. Then
0: literally the effects of the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Hey, you
1: could teach the book of revelation. Why I'd never open in the pages of revelation, just go Matthew through Jude and you could the same stuff. It's all there, mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. which is just pulling from the old Testament.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And and in light of the Jesus event. Yeah, exactly.
0: Absolutely good. Hey, this is good stuff. This is fun. Hopefully, everyone's uh, enjoying this and finding it edifying uh, to their own study. And uh, please check out those resources that we talked about. We had mentioned Rob's book, "Follow the Lamb," and
1: understand the New Testament in and and times.
0: Different title. So why would I have to buy it the second time?
1: You didn't. I just appreciated that. <laughs> I needed the revenue. Okay. I get Did like ten a lot cents a one. book, so, yeah, exactly. what, so it really helped.
0: Uh, well, was there the, anything else?
1: else? No. Yeah. The, the th- by the time this goes live, we probably will have comments enabled. So please go ahead and comment on the, on the podcast and let us know, give us a thumbs up, like the podcast, share with it, share it on Facebook and, and Twitter and everything else and don't get political and say, just, just share yes. it in, in a loving way and let people know but we'd love to have your feedback and then uh, we'll go through that and our plan actually in sometime soon will be to have an episode where we take a lot of questions and answer those questions so if you have questions that you want to throw in the comments, uh, feel free to do that also
0: good stuff. All right, everyone. Catch you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.